Today's scripture reading is from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, and may be found on page 1152 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. So let's read Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of, all, in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know one of the main things that keeps non-Christians away from Jesus? Christians, it's true, you've heard it before I'm sure, when asked why they don't follow Jesus, thousands of non-Christians say, because Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. Have you ever heard that? It's one of the main reasons that people are not attracted to the faith. It's because of seeing the lives of those who profess to know Christ. I've been reading a book called Unchristian. It's written by David Kinneman of the Barna Research Group. And in that book he says, whether we like it or not, the term hypocritical has become fused to young people's experience with Christianity. 85% of young outsiders, and by outsiders talking about someone who's looking at the faith from outside the church, not from within like we do, 85% of young outsiders conclude that present-day Christianity is hypocritical. Why are we perceived as hypocrites? Well, it's because our walk often doesn't match our talk. In the book that I referred to, Unchristian, there is a report of a study that was done by the Barna Group back in 2007 And it found that most, and I quote, of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-agains. 
when asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. The two groups, writes Kinnaman, are essentially no different from each other. Now we need to listen to that. Because we're supposed to be different. I can understand why non-Christians often look at us in the church and are repulsed by what they see, by what they watch on Christian TV, by what they hear and read about us in the newspaper. I can understand that. So yes, we fail to walk the talk at times. But, on the other hand, I can think of another reason, and it's a more subtle reason why we are perceived as hypocrites. And here it is. The label hypocrite is one of the unintended consequences of our message. Let me say it again. I believe that the the term or the label hypocrite is one of the unintended consequences of the message that we often send to those around us. Let me explain what I mean. What would you say most people, most non-Christian people would say is the real heart of Christianity? In other words, if you were to ask people how to get to heaven, what do you suspect would be their answer? I think the average non-Christian in our culture today would say something like, be a good person, be a decent person, do what is right, do the right thing, go to church. It would be something like that. And my question to you this morning is, where did they get that answer? Where did it come from? Well, in the book, Unchristian, David Kinnaman actually did research on that. The Barna folks did a study where they asked Christian adults... Folks just like you and me, to identify their faith priorities. Do you know what the most common response was? They asked Christian people, people just like us, what are your faith priorities? Do you know what their answers were? Being good, doing the right thing, and not sinning. Those were their faith priorities. Nothing about the gospel. Nothing about the love of God, nothing about forgiveness, belief in the cross, etc. And then Kinnaman went on to cite some more statistics. Listen to these. More than four out of every five committed churchgoers, that's more than 80%, agreed that the Christian life is well described as, quote, trying hard to do what God commands. Two-thirds of churchgoers said... Rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. Three out of every five churchgoers in America feel that they, quote, do not measure up to God's standards. And one-fourth, 25%, admitted that they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. Okay, 
if that's what we believe, if that's the way we feel about it, and if that's the message that even subtly we spread around the world, then it's no wonder we're considered hypocrites. Because we've set up the game board in a way that we're guaranteed to lose. We cannot live up to our own standards if that's what they are. We're telling the world, we're telling the world we've got it all together. Or at least that a person can get it all together. And, and we don't. We're telling the world that you get saved by works. But nobody's that good. Not even us. Our walk can't match our talk. So it's no wonder that people see that about us. But the problem is our message. Sure, we don't live up to the things that we should. Sure, we're living inconsistently. But a contributing factor to the label hypocrite is the message that we teach people by our words and by our values. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've invited the hypocrite label. We've created a religious system we can't live up to. We've bought into a false gospel that only sets us up for failure. To put it another way, we've done the same thing that the Apostle Peter did as recorded here in Galatians chapter 2. So what I want to do today with you before we have communion is talk about what Peter did wrong. That's first. Second, why he did it. And third, how can we learn from Peter's mistake? So the plan is, what did Peter do wrong? Why did he do it? How can we learn from it? First question. What did Peter do wrong? If you were listening as Jill read Galatians 2, our text, you heard verse 14. Verse 14 is a very, very important verse where Paul says that Peter got out of line with the truth of the gospel. That, in a nutshell, is what Peter did wrong. He got out of line with the truth of the gospel. You could say it this way. He got out of sync with the gospel. Let's go back up to the top of our text. And let me read verses 11 and 12. It says in verse 11, Galatians 2, that when Peter came to Antioch, I, that is the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Now, let's stop right there and answer the question, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that the Apostle Peter, very well-known figure in the New Testament, decided to go visit the Christians who were living in Antioch, which was a, a city in Syria. Now, you know that Peter was a Jew. But these people that he visited were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And while Peter was there in Antioch with them, he made it a habit to share meals with them. He sat down and had dinner and breakfast and lunch with these Gentile Christians. And that was perfectly appropriate. Peter, being a Jew, knew that the Old Testament law prohibited Jews from eating certain foods that were considered unclean and sitting across the dinner table from uncircumcised Gentiles. But, but Peter also knew the gospel. He knew that those rules and regulations that were back in the Old Testament about the ceremonial law were done away with, were fulfilled 
when Jesus Christ died on the cross. In fact, Peter had had a major turning point in his own life about that very topic. You'd have to go back and read into the book of Acts a little bit. But, for example, in Acts chapter 10, you read there about the fact that one day God gave Peter an amazing vision. And it was a vision letting Peter know that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. In this vision that God gave Peter, he saw food, uh, animals rather, and God said, all of these animals are clean now. There used to be, you know, under the Jewish law, there used to be some clean animals, some unclean. You could eat the clean, you could not eat the unclean. But now, he said in the vision, Peter, all animals are clean. Don't call anything unclean. And that was a very clear message to the Apostle Peter, a very faithful Jew, that now there were no unclean people. See, he got it. He got that message. Peter had come to understand the message of the cross. He had understood that Jesus plus zero equals salvation. He had no problem now sharing meals with non-Jewish Christians. He knew that they were his brothers and sisters in Christ. They'd been justified by grace through faith, just like Peter had. Their, Their sins had been forgiven, just like Peter's sins had been forgiven by Jesus. They loved Jesus just like Peter loved Jesus. Peter knew all that. Until one day, one fateful day, when a group of visitors from Jerusalem showed up there in Antioch. Verse 12 of our text says that these people claimed to represent James. Now James was one of the main leaders of the church in Jerusalem, which was the hub of the of Jewish Christianity at that time. But the fact is, these people who were visiting Antioch from Jerusalem were legalists. Some people call them Judaizers. Verse 12 says that they belonged to the circumcision group. In other words, these people, these visitors to Antioch, were teaching that to be accepted by God, you had to follow a list of do's and don'ts. You had to obey Even these Gentiles had to obey the Jewish ceremonial law. You had to only eat certain foods that were clean, stay away from the unclean foods. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised. And you certainly could not share a meal with an uncircumcised Gentile. That's what these visitors were teaching. Let me put it this way. For these Judaizers, the symbol of their faith was not the cross... It was a ladder. You see the difference? The symbol of their faith was not the cross. It was a ladder. They were teaching people that in order to be accepted by God, there were certain things you had to do to climb toward God to be accepted by Him. You had to eat certain foods. Circumcision, I'm not going to go any higher than this. But you fill in the blank. There were certain things that you had to accomplish in order to make yourself worthwhile, accepted, forgivable by God. All right. What did Peter do when these guys showed up from Jerusalem? Well, look at verse 12. It says that he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. That phrase, drew back, is a Greek word that means cower or shrink or withdraw or even shun. In other words, as verse 13 says, Peter became a hypocrite. 
See, he acted contrary to his earlier convictions. He put on a mask. That's what a hypocrite is, literally. A mask wearer. Peter put on a mask of self-righteousness. Before, you see, before Peter said that there was only one body of Christ. And it was made up of anyone who trusts in Jesus, who believes in him. But now... By his behavior, Peter was saying there were really two bodies of Christ. God had sort of a caste system. The circumcised Jews were up here because they climbed the ladder. But those uncircumcised Gentiles, they were way down here. And God made a difference between them based on their works. See, that was what Peter was now buying into. And Peter was implying that Jewish Christians were better than these Gentile Christians. And that was outrageous. It was downright heretical. It would be like this. This is maybe a bad illustration, but it would be like this. Suppose that a group of religious leaders from our denomination, called the Presbyterian Church in America, headquartered up in Atlanta, came down here one day. A group of four or five of these guys came down here to visit our church. Now, you know me. I think you know me well enough to know that not all of you are Presbyterians, and that's okay. You know, we've got Baptists and Methodists represented here, and people who do believe in infant baptism and don't believe in infant predestination, non-predestination. You know, I mean, we're, we're very diverse. And you know that's okay with me as long as you love Jesus. We can be one body in Christ. But let's suppose this group of people from PCA come down here and they say, Now, Mike, you know that only Presbyterians go to heaven. And not only that, they have to be Presbyterian Church in America Christians. And let's suppose... That that day that they visited, we were going to have a fellowship dinner over in the commons. And I know you, I know that we've got Baptists and Methodists and other groups of people represented in our church. And let's suppose that over in that building, while we were eating, I refused to come talk to you. I didn't sit down with you. Instead, I found the table with the little tag on it, PCA, where three or four people were sitting. (laughs) And, And that was me. We laugh because it's unthinkable that I would do that. But that's what Peter did. These authorities from Jerusalem came and said, Peter, to be accepted by God, these guys are not good enough. They haven't climbed the ladder. They haven't jumped through the hoops. It would be very similar to what I'm talking about. And it's so serious that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians, had to call Peter out publicly. Verse 14, let me read it for you again. It says, when I saw, I being Paul, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. That's okay. But how is it then, Peter, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, dude, what are you doing? I hear Paul saying. You know better than this. And Paul goes on to say down in verse 21, Peter, you're setting aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Peter, Christ died for nothing. This is a very serious rebuke. By one apostle to another. This is an amazing passage of scripture. I call this sermon. What the Bible says about Christians. 
What does this say about Christians? Christians can fall. Christians can slip up. If Peter could do it, you can do it. So can I. And we have. What did Peter do wrong? Basically, he didn't act in line or, as I said, in sync with the gospel. The gospel says you're accepted by God because of Jesus, period. The gospel says the privilege of getting right with God was purchased and paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. And the only way to enjoy that privilege is to put your faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, period. But the Judaizers had a different idea. They said you're accepted by God because you obeyed a law. They said you're accepted by God because you climbed the ladder. You know, we've got our own ladders. Right here in our own church, right here in East Orlando, uh, East Orlando, we've got our own ladders, don't we? Anything you do to substitute for the cross of Christ, to make yourself acceptable by God, is the heresy of Galatians 2. These are mutually exclusive religious systems, the ladder and the cross. Believe the one and you're out of sync with the gospel. Believe this one and you're in line with the truth of the gospel. It's that simple. All right. I think we've answered the first question, what did Peter do wrong? Second question is, why did he do it? It's real important that you see this. The answer is in verse 12. It says in verse 12 that when they, that is these Judaizers, arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Fear. That's the reason. Peter was afraid of looking bad before these religious authorities. Peter was afraid of being criticized by people he admired. He was afraid of what other people would say about him. He was afraid of losing his spot on the ladder. It was a serious lapse of faith. See, when you stop trusting in Christ alone as the source of all of your righteousness, you abandon the gospel and you start living out of fear and insecurity. And that only leads to more sin. Sins like pride. Sins like jealousy. And so on and so forth. I want to do something with you right now. That I think will put a real clear graphic face on everything I've said. So that you can really make sure you get this. I'm very indebted to Ruthie and David Delk. And Johnny and Christy Lalonde. For coming up with a diagram. They call it the gospel cycle. And uh, this is not the full thing. I've kind of adapted it for the purpose of our time together this morning. But let me show you what this diagram might help you to see. If, if you are one who trusts only in Christ, the Bible says you're God's child. And this is a picture of the prodigal son being embraced by his father when he returns home. And if you are a child of God, you know very well that often you fall into sin. We all fail and break God's commands. The question is, what do we do when we fail? We're supposed to repent. Now, what is that? Well, what repentance involves is remembering who God is. And so if you're repenting of sin, you need to first remind yourself, God is my father. He's my shepherd. He's my redeemer. He's my friend. He's my savior. 
And that immediately begins to remind you of your identity. And you remember, oh, wait, I am loved. Even though I've fallen, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, I'm healed. I am, even in my sin, rejoiced over by the Father. And what this does is it helps restore you. Restore you to God so that your relationship is still intact. So this is a cycle of faith that we are to live out of every single day. This is what we call around here preaching the gospel to yourself. Okay, so what this is, is it's putting the cross right in the center of your thinking. Instead of a ladder, you go back to the cross every time you sin. And you remember, oh wait, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 But the truth of the matter is, sometimes it doesn't work out so neatly. Um, What happens often when we sin when we get hurt, when we are betrayed or abused, rejected, when we are fearful, as Peter was, when we feel lonely and all sorts of other emotions, what often happens in us is that the cross shrinks in size. And we don't go to the Father. We don't run back to the cross like we should. Instead, what we do is we think that God is angry He's unforgiving, he is unfair, he's distant, he's just a lawgiver, nothing else. He's uncaring. And that begins to kind of reshape our identity and we start thinking wrongly about ourselves. We think, oh wait, I'm afraid, I'm lonely, I'm uncared for, I'm unforgiven and unforgivable and I might as well accept it, I'm on my own now. See, those are the, those are the thinkings, those are the thoughts that often go through our heads when we don't go to the cross instinctively. And what this is, is it's, uh, it's a various form of false repentance. We, we sort of fool ourselves into thinking that we're acting spiritual when we're really doing some of these things. We're minimizing our sin, or we're blaming other people for our problems, or perhaps we're exaggerating our own goodness. We're rationalizing ourselves so that we don't really deal with the heart of the matter. You recognize some of these things, right? They are false repentances. Some of them even feel spiritual, but they are not ones that take us to the cross. Instead, they only make us feel like an orphan. So that we're thinking like an orphan instead of a child here. And what this does is it it immediately leads to idolatry because we start trusting in something besides Jesus. For example, if you normally trust in your intellect... That's an idol for you. Or maybe it's your beauty or your handsomeness or your athleticism. Perhaps it's your competence. Maybe your idol is your great children or your wonderful parents or something like that. Maybe it's the idol of approval. Doesn't it appear that that's what Peter's idol was? He so wanted the approval of those Jerusalem authorities that he was willing to hurt his Gentile friends and separate himself from them, if only it meant that he was approved of by these Jerusalem guys. See, that's idolatry. And if you're not careful, you're going to be setting this cycle up to where you're always looking at idols, you're always doing false repentance instead of true, and Jesus and the gospel are way up there in the corner somewhere. You know what that is? It's living by law. It's living by the ladder instead of the cross. 
It's thinking that if I do this, God will love me. If I step up, God will approve of me. You know, you name it, whatever you will. Anything you do in order to work yourself back into the favor of God is this big circle here. And it's not living by faith, it's living by law. So what do we do when we find ourselves in this mess? Here's what we should do. If you're a believer in Jesus, you should repent. And now you know what that means. It means you remember who God is. He's your father, your shepherd, your savior, your redeemer, your friend. And you remember, you remind yourself who you are. You're his child. You're accepted, forgiven, healed, and rejoiced over. And this sets back in motion the gospel cycle. Does this make sense to you? It's so exactly what's going on in Galatians 2. Peter got out of sync with that and started going down the other way. The, uh, the way of law instead of the way of liberty. So, what can we learn from Peter's mistake? What can we learn? We can learn that we need to get off the ladder and get in sync with the gospel. And run to the cross, in other words. In verse 18, Paul reminds us not to rebuild what was destroyed. What's he talking about? He's talking about rebuilding our own righteousness on some other foundation besides Jesus. Paul says don't rebuild what's been destroyed or else you're just going to wind up sinning more. It's just going to prove yourself to be a lawbreaker. It doesn't work that way. Like it says in verse 20, Paul's word to you and me this morning is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. It means, in other words, go back to the cross. Live in light of that other diagram, wherever it is, Paul. Bang. There we go. (laughs) Live in light of that. Cement that in your mind. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you never sin. What it means is, what do you do about your sin? You go back to Calvary and remind yourself of the gospel of grace. The name of the sermon is what the Bible really says about Christians. You know what the Bible says about Christians? It says that we don't have it all together. It says that we need Jesus, just like they do, all the time. It says that we are broken, we are deeply messed up, and that's why Jesus came to this earth. This ladder here, I started thinking about it. What Jesus did really was turn it upside down. He left heaven and came to earth where we are, lost in sin and shame and misery, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, live the perfect life, pay the penalty for our sin, achieve our forgiveness so that all who put their faith and hope in Jesus can be declared righteous forever through faith. And that's the message we need to give the world. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for setting aside your grace and trying to build a righteousness of our own. Forgive us for our false repentances, our excuse-making, our blaming other people, our 
minimizing your righteous demands, our self-pity. Forgive us, Lord, for bowing before idols of money and perfectionism, approval or work or beauty or family or trying to find our hope in those things. Forgive us, Lord, for our hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. Forgive us for pretending to have the answers when we don't, for pretending to have it all together when we don't, for acting like we're good when we're not. Forgive your church, Father, for sending the wrong message to non-Christians. Help us, Jesus, to tell them it's all about you. Help us to live by faith in you at all times, to trust in your righteousness, not our own. You, Lord, are our Savior, our Redeemer, the only mediator between God and people. Thank you, Jesus, for living the life we could never live and dying the death we deserve to die. Thank you for adopting us so that we would never, ever have to feel like orphans. So we come now to your table. We thank you for the bread and the cup. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us enough to remind us frequently that you are always with us. We thank you that though these elements are not your literal body and blood, they are tokens of your covenant of love. They are visible, tangible, tasteable reminders to us that you died for us. You live for us and you're coming back again one day for us. And they're a foretaste of glory when we one day will sit around a table and dine with you with the body of Christ from all over the world, every language, every kindred, every tribe, every nation. Lord, thank you. Holy Spirit, come. Bless these elements. Allow us to celebrate your presence in our lives. Allow us to repent even now. Lord, may each of us, as we take the bread and as we drink the cup, repent by running back to the Father, by stopping trusting in our ladders and instead exalting your grace. Lord, let this now happen, we pray, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.